This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lengel. And on today's show, sisters Leah and Chloe Smith are known to many Louisianans as Folk Roots Group Rising Appalachian. Their most recent project was recorded and live-streamed at New Orleans Preservation Hall. We'll chat with Sister Leah. Up first, it's been more than four months since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and Louisiana's most powerful anti-abortion organization has been shoring up support for the state's near-total abortion ban. Louisiana Right to Life helped write the ban, and as public health reporter Rosemary Westwood found, the organization isn't done fighting. Ben Clapper, the executive director of Louisiana Right to Life, walked up to a podium at the Baton Rouge Press Club on a recent Monday. Thank you, everybody. It's great to be here. Thank you. This was Clapper's first major address to journalists since June 24th. That's when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, triggering Louisiana's law banning nearly all abortions, including in cases of rape and incest. Clapper began by celebrating that victory. And we estimate that so far since Roe v. Wade being overturned, 2,512 unborn babies have been protected by our law. That's likely an overcount. It is likely hundreds of women have been forced to stay pregnant over the last four months. But one study found online requests for abortion pills have tripled in Louisiana, and it's not clear how many other women have traveled out of state. Anti-abortion groups want to take that travel option away, too, with a national abortion ban. But for Clapper and Louisiana Right to Life, there's a more pressing issue, holding on to this victory in this state. That's been the organization's focus for months, shoring up support for one of the nation's most extreme abortion bans. On a hot sunny day in September, cars rushed by on Veterans Memorial Parkway in Metairie, where a group of a few dozen anti-abortion advocates gathered in the neutral ground. They began in prayer. Lord God, thank you so much for bringing us together today. Thank you for the victory of life. The group was there for what's called a life chain event, where anti-abortion supporters in towns across the country stand at street corners, waving signs to promote their message. One was Karen Vieriel, 64, who lives in Algiers. She held up her sign. It says, women deserve better than abortion. And what do you hope people will take away from seeing a sign like that? I hope that anyone that's thinking about abortion will instead go for help at the pregnancy centers. Pregnancy centers are typically run by Christian organizations and churches, and they help pregnant and new moms. They were designed originally to dissuade women from having abortions. Now Louisiana Right to Life and other anti-abortion groups see them as a frontline service to help women who will be forced to stay pregnant. Pro-choice people have been making so much noise. I want everyone to know that pro-life people are wanting to help. These pregnancy centers offer clothes, parenting classes, referrals to health care or social services. Some have been funded by millions of dollars in state grants, but they don't provide comprehensive reproductive health care. And many oppose not just abortion, but various forms of contraception or comprehensive sex education. On the edge of the busy street in Metairie, Alex Sagers, the director of education for Louisiana Right to Life, said one of the key goals was to show support for the state's abortion ban. The climate is <laughs> tense right now, and people have so many questions, and people who were pro-life are kind of, you know, sometimes even questioning them it themselves. Sigurd said these people were responding to what she called misinformation. 
Physicians have said the ban is causing fear and confusion in Louisiana hospitals, delays in care, and patients being denied abortions even for medical reasons. Louisiana Right to Life has downplayed those reports and suggested they've been manufactured by those who support abortion rights. It says the ban is clear and doesn't interfere with pregnancy care. Sager said there's also some concern that legislators could try to add rape and incest exceptions to the law, something Governor John Bell Edwards has said he supports. I think we're at a very vulnerable position and people feeling um, angry and wanting to put exceptions in our law. So legislatively, we need to be stronger than ever. One legislative session could change our pro-life laws. T.J. Burgess is a 20-year-old native of Metairie who works with Louisiana Right to Life and runs an organization called Men for Life. For so long, we've been playing, you know, offense, you know, protecting and establishing our pro-life laws, making sure that we have the structure and resources available for pregnant women in their pregnancies. And now really is the time in which we, we do. We need to double down. Back at last month's appearance at the press club, Clapper said one way to defend the ban was to keep playing offense. That means going after one exception in the law that Louisiana Right to Life has always opposed, an exception for so-called medically futile pregnancies, when the fetus is deemed too sick to live. Clapper told journalists that no one should be allowed to get abortions for terminally ill fetuses. Every human person, even if they are disabled, born or unborn, deserves their full lifespan, whether their lifespan is short or long. It's an issue that gained prominence over the summer, after the case of Louisiana native Nancy Davis made national headlines. Davis was forced to travel to New York for an abortion after learning her fetus had no brain or skull. She said she chose abortion to prevent her child's suffering. But Louisiana Right to Life has been promoting other stories, stories of families who chose to carry those kinds of pregnancies to term. Clapper told journalists about a baby named Tess, the daughter of a friend of his, who was diagnosed with trisomy 13. That's one of the conditions that currently allows for a legal abortion. Uh, but my friend did not choose abortion. Tess was uh, born and she only lived for nine hours. While her life was short, my friend shares that Tess was a blessing to her family. Clapper is a reserved and careful speaker, and he didn't make any promises. But he did say Louisiana Right to Life would support banning abortions for medically futile pregnancies in the next legislative session. We would support efforts to remove that exception. Clapper also said Louisiana Right to Life is going to push for more support for infant adoption, one solution it sees to women forced to carry pregnancies. It's still fighting other battles, too, that it says are connected to abortion. Louisiana Right to Life has criticized vaccines that are developed using cells from aborted fetuses. And it's helped to prevent the legislature from increasing health insurance for fertility treatments, because it opposes the way IVF creates embryos. In the first few months of a post-row Louisiana, Clapper has been traveling the state, giving talks in churches where he urges anti-abortion advocates not to pack up and go home, now that they'd won a monumental victory. His message is simple. Louisiana's abortion ban isn't the end of their fight. It's the beginning of a new one. In New Orleans, I'm Rosemary Westwood. Public health reporter Rosemary Westwood on the anti-abortion movement in Louisiana. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Carl Lengel. 
Folk Roots group Rising Appalachia has recently recorded and live-streamed at New Orleans Preservation Jazz Hall. The performance audio was shared on November 11th as Rising Appalachia live at Preservation Hall alongside exclusive videos from the concert. Spending many of their early years growing and learning both musically as people in New Orleans, sisters Leah and Chloe hold the city and venue close to their hearts, rooted in activism, The band will be donating a portion of the proceeds to the Preservation Hall Foundation. We caught up with Sister Leah, who goes by Leah's song professionally, for an update on the act, familiar to many as one-time French quarter buskers. Leah, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. My pleasure. Good to be here. So let's go to the beginning, which actually includes just a little bit of New Orleans, your sisters. Tell us a little bit about the beginning of this. We are sisters, uh, and New Orleans is a is a big, beautiful, robust part of our our story and the story of this music. We um, we grew up in a in a real musical family in Georgia, um, and our family played a lot of kind of traditional folk music from the South, uh, and so we we had a lot of musical upbringing, uh, but we never really thought we would make music our living. We just figured it would be part of our story and part of our livelihood and part of our hobbies, really. And, and uh, we both moved down to New Orleans uh, shortly after after Katrina struck the city, and we came down originally to work with several friends that were part of some of the rebuild working that were happening in the city, and we came for what we thought would be about five or eight days. We were invited to participate in some of the cultural exchange that was being offered as part of the restoration of the of the city, and we we said, well, we, we will do whatever we can to, to sort of contribute. It was an amazing organization that was bringing a lot of arts and culture down, and uh, we stayed not for five days, but for seven years after <laughs> that visit. That happened. Which I... Imagine you hear that story many, many well, times. No, it's, it, it, is, it is interesting because you hear it, yes, but you hear it from creative people a lot, which is always kind of, oh, well, that makes sense. Right, right. And then, and it was in our life there. We were, we were working with a lot of local musicians and artists and activists and theater professors and dance companies. We have incredible friends down there in the arts. Uh, who are all full-time working artists, that we began to really understand our role and our responsibility as artists and as culture bearers and as kind of second and third generation players of a, of a traditional music. This was the motivation, the, the kind of coming to New Orleans, or had you been working together kind of, you came from a musical background, so you always had that around, but were you starting to reach out professionally or was this something that came with the stay in New Orleans? We had already begun. The Rising Appalachia began, and it, it's, it's, its backbone has a really interesting story in Georgia, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And we, you know, we were beginning to play. We were touring a little bit and with our instruments on our backs in Europe and across you know, Latin America and on train travel, doing a lot of street performing. We had recorded an album already. Uh, and then we began to make our life in New Orleans. And, you know, music is is royalty and 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 also its currency in new orleans and and all of a sudden what felt to us almost like it was perhaps a hobby or just a really cool creative art project all of a sudden became 
you know, something that we we owed ourselves and our family and our community to take a little more seriously, and we were getting invited to play more, and we we spent probably five of those seven years busking. We would often busk on, on charters, and I think it was charters in St. Peter that was a corner that we would often play on, and we'd, we'd go five five days a week like it was our day job and figure out which songs worked and which songs we were writing that caught people's attention and which ones were rubbish and <laughs> tried to stay out of the way of all the really fantastic jazz bands because they, you know, they needed domain and we would just tuck into the little corners and, and hone our chops, you know? And so I think it, it just got much more fine tuned in our, in our life there. Now, Preservation Hall, I want to bring it up to the present because that became a very big part of this. Was that on the horizon at that time, or was this something that you kind of, after you cultivated this, it went, wow, this would be something? Well, you know, we are friends with several of the players and and the creative director um, over many, many years of various different musical potlucks and festivals and crossroads and lots of time in backyard barbecues. Brendan and, and Aurora, who are both on the album, uh, both became really dear friends, and we we would play together and tour together and swap uh, food from our refrigerators when a tour was over and the other one of us was leaving. And so we were building relationship with all the musicians, as as everyone does uh, in New Orleans. And and then it was a long and slow conversation around doing a collaboration with the Preservation Hall and. One that we really were incredibly humbled to even be in conversation about because right. the music that comes out of out of Pres Hall is is as legendary and as incredible as anything you'll hear anywhere around the world. And the roots. So it's the roots, and you feel the roots in that space. And and we would just go and sit and listen for years and years and years. Anytime anyone would visit, we would always take them there. And anytime we got off of a job early or happened to find ourselves in the French Quarter on a on a random evening, we would just make our way in just to listen and, and just be saturated in the sounds. And right. So it was a, a, a deeply, I would say, nearly religious experience to, to go listen to jazz, which many, many people have experienced and, and, and would probably attest to themselves. And And then as the friendships developed and and the conversations developed about a bigger collaboration. We were we never knew what that would that would look like. We sat in a couple times and would sing uh, when we were in town. We would sing in with the with the band and do St. James Infirmary or or just a closer walk with the one of the old trad tunes. And yeah. so when the invitation came to, it was in the in, deep in the pandemic still when things hadn't opened to to try and build a project out in the hall. We thought, well, this would be a really cool time and a, and a, a, a way to begin to build those relationships and, and that collaboration in a time where no one is, is really going out still. And we could kind of bring the spirit of live music and the spirit of Prez Hall it, literally into people's living rooms. So 
When you talk about uh, spirit, too, I want to talk just a little bit about that space because you have a great reference for that space, and I think a lot of people do. It's an intimate space, a small space. And I want to kick reference to something else that I noticed on your tour schedule. You played a place in Deland, Florida. I know that place in Deland, Florida. It is small. <laughs> but the point that I want to make on this is you are... Do you? It's wonderful to play those spaces. You talk about busking and you're on the street and you're in the open air and everything just goes everywhere it goes. But when you're in those spaces, it's very different for an artist. Do you find that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say Prez Hall was, it's one of our favorite places in the in the world. And we, we not too long ago also played Red Rocks, which is ten ten thousand person space. That's you know, you know it's and there's a there's a big difference. Do you, did, there's a big difference. Yeah. Is the is it more fun to play a Red Rock because there are thousands of people there, or is it more fun to be in that space where you can see every face in the crowd? I mean, I I wouldn't trade that the Prez Hall show for anything. Yeah. It it is so special to be able to see the faces, to be able to feel the, the room itself. I mean, it's actually more nerve-wracking. <laughs> That's the funny part. <laughs> 10,000 people, it just a, becomes a sea. It's but like, when you see your friends and you get to tell, oh, they're, are they into this one? You know, oh, you're doing it for oh, the family, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so much more nerve-wracking. Yeah. So the, the how did the event go? The, because we are in past tense on this, the initial streaming and the, all of that. How did that go? It was really, really special for us. to, to We were able to be in the space all day. We rehearsed for several days. Uh, the day before, we had a got a little... Um, house that we were all just based out of and cooking and feasting and, and running all the tunes and just, you know, rolling around on bicycle everywhere as one does. And, you know, but the, the, the nerves were really high. The day was gorgeous and you roll in and we had a, a small, fantastic camera crew in there. And we uh, put the show tucked kind of right before the, the standard evening events for the Prez Hall band. So we were the sort of the matinee and then and then the evening went into the to the three show standard and um it was amazing it was very vibrant to feel it live and then i think this next iteration of it feels almost deeper in a way that we're we're kind of bringing that all that the music all the way into our lives and our discography forever and when we did the recording, we weren't totally sure that we would feel that way. We weren't sure if we would want it to become an album or not. And then I think it was just such a spirited performance. And we were just really touched to all be playing together and playing in that space and, and feeling the the deep reverence of the space. That I, I think it carries through really, mm-hmm. really tr- truly into the music. As usual, uh, we are out of time, and I have at least 10 to 15 more questions ask because this is just, I love talking to performers, particularly performers that work in a lot of different environments, and particularly performers that come out of this kind of a background, this the, the very truthful storytelling in music, where it's you and the instrument and the audience, right. basically. What would you like us to leave with? Is there something from the album that we can play out on? Oh, well... Uh, I'm a big fan of, of Just a Closer Walk with Thee, which is just an old standard. 
And I love the way the horns lean into that one and feels like the right way to be reverent. Appalachia from their Preservation Hall project. You can get more info about the sisters at risingappalachia.com. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. That's the show today. I'm Carl Lengel. Pleasure having you along. Thanks to our guest, Leah Song, and to reporter Rosemary Westwood. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our digital editor is Caitlin Dumholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Procell, and Thomas Walsh. Louisiana Considered airs Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30. It's also available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Southern Strategy Group. Just a close walk with
Yeah.